cooking in Tassie is pretty simple, really. You kind of you spend ninety percent of your time on the phone trying to find someone that's caught a fish or its tomatoes are ripe, uh, and then you spend the other ten percent of your time making a vinaigrette for them. <laughs> it's, you don't really have to do much and I do love it down here I do love working within a season this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep when we think of a career in hospitality we often think of late nights and socializing while howling at the moon working the sort of hours where others are living it up and left to the wee hours to wind down. But the industry is changing. The desire to strike a work-life balance is forcing change in an industry renowned for long shifts and late nights. Peter Cooksley is a chef of Hamlet Community and Cafe in Hobart, Tasmania. Peter, how are you? Very well, mate. Yourself? I'm good. You've had a career in some pretty incredible restaurants in Tasmania and and Melbourne. Um, You've landed a role landed a role in a, in a, in a cafe and part of the community. It's, um, what's that shift been like for you? Um, big, really. I kind of, uh, it's a cafe, so I kind, of, I kind of pushed against the cafe thing, as I think most chefs do, um, the dark side, I suppose. Um, yeah, so it's been pretty huge. Um, the, the mornings thing is massive already. The, the food is completely different. But I guess Hamlet isn't your everyday cafe either. It's a very, very different working environment. It's, it's a fascinating um, project, the Hamlet Community and Cafe. Tell, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, so it was started by my partner, Emily Riffer, six years ago. Her brother, Jared, ran Kinfolk in Melbourne, um, social enterprise as well that does a similar thing. She, she worked there for a few years and then moved down to open Franklin with Dave. Um, but then noticed the, the mass problem of unemployment in Tasmania and couldn't sit by and not do anything. So she opened Hamlet as a, as a cafe, social enterprise, and as a training environment to try and get people into the workforce. Take us into the kitchen and, and the business. How, how does it work and what are, what are the opportunities that are there? Uh, so as a, a social enterprise, it runs as, its, as a standalone cafe itself. It, it has to make its own money. To, to, to be what it is. Um, but then we bring in on top of that um, about seven participants a day. Uh, they, they do a 10-week program with us. Um, they, these are all people that have, that have applied themselves to join the program, um, and they all face different barriers to unemployment, whether it be long-term unemployment, um, physical, mental dif- disabilities, English as a second language, uh, just things that have kept them out of the workforce and, and the community. Uh, we bring them in. We, I guess from the kitchen, we, we teach them basic skills in a kitchen. We assess what their their end game is, I suppose, whether it is just cooking more at home or it is a an apprenticeship or role in the in the industry. And we take them through 10 weeks into, yeah, trying to get the most out of them and show them the community and, yeah, show them the workforce. You mentioned your hesitancy at the beginning about moving into the cafe world, but what's it been like and what sort of impact has it had on you in that role? Um, uh, two parts, I suppose. It's It's been incredible for, for my food, I suppose, as terrible a phrase as that is. <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's been, it's been able to open up a lot more because I guess before this uh, Franklin Diamaker, it was high pressure, um, 
fancy food, I suppose. I don't know. There's so much pressure to make every element so incredibly special and perfect. And I don't know. It, it, it stops you from cooking very deliciously, I suppose. In the cafe environment, people are coming in for one plate. They want it now. And you can just go full on flavor. It's great. It's a lot more fun. You go and you, it takes the pressure off and you just cook. I want to explore what uh, you're doing at Hamlet with the food and also the impact that it has on those coming to garner skills there um, and opportunity and also what it's happened, what's the change in your life. But take us back to when you were young. What's, what sort of role did food play in your family? Uh, food, food was massive. And my, my dad was a, was a fisherman. Uh, mum did a year apprenticeship and kind of got pushed out of it by some, um, I don't know, that, that classic yelly, shouty chef. So she, she always had that, that want to cook food and we ate, we ate great at home. Always had veggie gardens. Mum cooked a, a broad range of things every night for dinner and kind of that, at that time in Tassie, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of food about. Um, so yeah, we always celebrated with, with food. It was always a fun thing. I always enjoyed it. I, making scrambled eggs for my dad when I was five years old. Um, we always ate lots of seafood. Dad was always bringing home dory and blue eye and whatever was caught. And, yeah, I guess it was always there, big Christmas family things. Nothing too out of the ordinary from an Australian table, but I don't know. It was always important to eat well. I was always, yeah, going to move into doing that myself when I got older. What triggered the move to a career in hospitality for you? Uh, I guess it wasn't really a move. I think when I got to high school and could choose courses, you, I chose the home ec course. I'm, I'm into uh, grade 11. I would do a vet course, which is a bit at school and a bit in the workplace. And kind of the first time I got in the kitchen, I thought that was it. I was in. Uh, I went to take an apprenticeship at a, at a pub. Um, it, was, it was pretty rough. Um, uh, my mother told me to maybe have another look around, and I, I started in a, in a bit of a fine diner instead. Um, but learned some fun things in the pub while I was there. <laughs> well, do you have any stories of those early years, you know, from the pub and when you went to a fine diner and, and what that world was like for you? Um, well, yeah, the, the fine diner I moved into is the Henry Jones Art Hotel. My mum was a, a, a waitress there. Uh, I, I started on the little pastry section under under someone that's been on a podcast before, I think, Ian Todd. Um, and it was, I don't know, I was, I was 17. I kind of left school straight into cooking. It was like life changed uh, within a day. All friendship group was different. I was um, instead of hanging around with 16, 17-year-old kids, I was hanging around with 30-year-old cooks riding mountain bikes and, you know, just 100% into that life. Um, I remember I know, I'd, I'd stay until the night porter came on, which was like an hour or so after all the chefs left. So I'd very, very fond memories of making the biggest, most expensive panini sandwiches I could when everyone left their sections sections open. Um, and then helping my polish cutlery and, uh, into that massive work hour week from a very early age in it, I think. Set out for a few years of... of Oh, probably not making the best choices as far as work hours go. And it was kind of what was done at the time. 100 hours a week was what was somewhat expected. It was nearly like a, I know, a challenge to do that. In the early years, you spent some time in New Zealand as well. How different was that to what you had experienced so far in the hospitality sector? Um, yeah, it was it was fun. I kind of I, I think I was I just finished my apprenticeship and I went over to initially to to work at Mungles Bike Shop 
um, I wanted a break from cooking and got there and, and realized I couldn't really work on bikes and couldn't do anything but cook. So I, um, uh, I got really lucky. Wellington, Wellington was, it was a really cool time to be there. The hospital scene was super tight. Um, a, a easy step up from a small town of Hobart to go there and inducted into a really cool hospo family. Um, the, I can't remember the name now, but the, the restaurant worked out was a crazy horse and they had a, a pizza shop called Scopa and another base shop called Duke Carvels. And it was just, I don't know, from being knowing everyone in a, in an industry in your town to, to being thrown into a, a bit of a party and, you know, kind of dropped on the pass when I'd just been an apprentice on larder sections in a, in a steak restaurant. It was great. Scary being away from home for the first time and, you know, living by yourself for the first time. You've been a part of this amazing evolution of food and restaurants in Tasmania, and in the early days, you were um, with Source and Ethos. Um, take us into those kitchens. What, what sort of impact did they have on you? Um, yeah, interesting. I guess two two very different places and learned very different things. Uh, Ethos was was heavily. The early days of, well, not early days, it was, but it was very produce driven, I suppose. Um, probably not in the same way I am now, but um, I don't know. We we kind of we tried a lot at Ethos when I was there. We might not have had the right direction, but we had the right ideals, I think. Uh, Mona was the other end of that spectrum. I learned a lot off Philippe. Um, it's the first time I've been exposed to like very hardcore European techniques. We had a crazy kitchen. It was like, it was a $200,000 induction island in the middle of the kitchen. Um, Philippe had worked for Alain de Rose and um, in, the, in three stars in, in Paris and you know, I'd never ever seen that cooking before. So that was, that was really cool. But then I guess with that technique, there was no connection to any produce. We're flying in. We're flying in um, white onions from Chile and you know, mushrooms from France, and, which is cool to see. But I think what ended it for me there was uh, just over the top. It was a David Walsh birthday, I think, and just just you know, being meat having hung up in a museum and being thrown out, just kind of, yeah, hit me the wrong way. I needed to get away from that again and, you know, find produce, find people growing things. Sounds a bit cliche now. <laughs> you made a move to Melbourne and worked with a lot, worked in a lot of incredible restaurants and became opening crew as well for for some of the most renowned restaurants. Now, take us to your time in, in Melbourne. Do you have any stories of the really important moments for you and venues? Um, yeah, so well, Cumulus was a wild thing to be involved in. Um, it was that place when you went to Melbourne, you had breakfast in always. Um, to get into that kitchen and see what it was like. It's just it's a madhouse. And the kitchen, breakfast guys started at 6 a.m. and, you know, you'd jump on, have your checks coming on the board at quarter past 11 and you're still pulling slow-cooked eggs out of your water bath and finding shack sugar at the back of your oven. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, Andrew McConnell coming over and asking if you'd checked all the oysters and telling you they were off. They definitely weren't, but <laughs> just making sure you're in your toes. He was great. Andrew Andrew is absolutely one of the well, – everyone, everyone that probably listens to this understands that Andrew is one of the, the greatest cooks in the country, but his – I don't know, his presence was uh, just incredible. And being able to open Super Normal with him was, was great. Um, 
biggest biggest impact was was definitely Embla though. Had had a great love for Dave's food at the at the Town Mouse, and you know, crazy lucky to be asked to go and and help out with with opening of Embla and yeah, that was Dave's Dave's food is it's just insane. Um, that that venue, I think Embla was a big turning point in Melbourne's food as well. Really, first kind of natural wine bar. Um, the food was so simple and executed so well. And we you know, spent a, it was really cool to spend a lot of time building supplies as well. We started out using veg supplies, and the more Dave's food got known to variety, and the more we got talked about, the more people were able to access and more you know, properly work within a season rather than just getting things in boxes that are all the same shape. Uh, and, and running a crew as well. You know, main, we maintained the, the same crew for about two years in a, in a city restaurant, which is, I think, paramount to our success there. Right? We, you know, Dave's food is pretty um, individual. It's pretty much his own. It's really hard food and a really hard seasoning to train people. So to be able to hold on to a few guys for a long time was, was great. What sort of impact did that time there have on you and your approach to food? Uh, absolutely. Totally changed the way I look at things. I think I don't know, a simple thing, but like Dave's aromats, use of use of hard herbs and garlic and lemon, you kind of, I don't know, learned a lot working for McConnell, but working at a place as big as Supernormal, you kind of lose sight of those things a little bit, the little small elements that mean so much at the end. Uh, so Dave really brought that back. And I don't know, just an absolute eye for detail and intenseness at all times. Um, yeah, huge. And a first introduction to, to wood fire cooking as well. You spent some time um, traveling before returning to Hobart, but what sort of influence did traveling and uh, Canada and Europe have on, on you and what you do? Um, it was big. It was okay to like all that pressure in that, that time at Embla, you know, we were kind of every service there was someone looking at you, every service there was someone Instagramming or reviewing or doing something and somewhat hit a level of burnout and needed to needed to get away, needed to leave Melbourne for a while. Uh, and travelling Europe and kind of eating those things that you try to emulate in restaurants and eating them in, in situ, eating raw cream in Normandy poured over a boiled shark with potatoes and sorrel, eating you know, fried whole dory and creve gris in a little old lady's house is, yeah, it kind of gave me a lot of, of that obvious respect and understanding that things have a time and a place that you need to, you can't kind of recreate them in a, in a kitchen in, in Melbourne. There's, there's some things that just need to be left where they are. Uh, it gave me a lot of time as well. In Canada, I spent a month baking with friends that had just opened a really cool bakery on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. And at that time, it was the first time I can remember seeing uh, a season go through, seeing berries come from flowers into berries and seeing moon phase go through and being able to look up a bit, I suppose. What brought you back to to Australia? Um, it was always kind of the plan, I suppose. Again, there was, a, there was maybe an idea of staying in Europe, but I didn't really trust my skill set at that stage. Uh, and probably spent too much money on wine as well. Um, <laughs> uh, and Tassie, Tassie has this magnetic draw. I'm from here and it, it's always going to be home kind of 
uh, I've kind of felt a bit of a need to, to I don't know, give back the wrong word, but I felt like I, I, if I was going to achieve something and I was going to cook properly, I needed to do it in Tasmania. I needed to see, I, I wanted to see a Tasmanian do it, I suppose. See a lot of, uh, I know, Dave Moyle, Luke Burgess come down and incredibly respectful to Tasmania, don't get me wrong, but I, I kind, of, kind of wanted some Tasmanians to, to be able to do it as well, stand up at that level. Kind of chasing, chasing that dragon a little bit. <laughs> you, you moved back to Tasmania uh, and to Franklin and eventually taking that over. Take us into that kitchen and what it was like for you. Um, so I started there working for Annalise as, as at uh, Lucinda Wine Bar because that was kind of my, my aim. Go back to Tasmania and open a wine bar or a pizza restaurant or something that was a bit kind of you know, white T-shirts, shoot from the hip sort of stuff. Um, and then getting back into the Franklin kitchen, seeing the seeing the produce and the the, the relationships that have been built there, and and the the stuff coming through the kitchen every day, and seeing that massive big wood oven that Moyle had built, is too hard not to kind of want to sink my teeth into it. Um, and then given the opportunity, when Annalise moved on to to have a crack at running, it, it was in hindsight maybe not the best decision. For, for myself and for mental health. I'd, I'd had learnt those lessons going overseas that, that doing those crazy hours. We were only open at dinner at, at Franklin, but when it's when it's on your back, you find yourself in there at crazy hours doing silly things, picking up eels from the airport at 6 a.m. and trying to kill them before anyone gets in the kitchen to see you dropping them on the floor. <laughs> um, it was great. It was It kind of ran into that that um, that big C word timing. Um, just as just as I felt we were hitting my steps, just as we had a, a team together and they kind of had worked out what I wanted to do with it, I suppose. Um, and yeah, COVID hit. There were other things at play, um, and and we got shut down. But again, a fortuitous. I think I got. I think I'm one of the the lucky ones from all the COVID stuff. I got a chance to to remember all those things I learned. What was the the positives that you took from that Franklin experience? Um, I got to to build some really cool relationships with all the the people down here. Um, and Tassie cooking in Tassie is pretty simple, really. You kind of you spend ninety percent of your time on the phone trying to find someone that's caught a fish or its tomatoes are ripe, uh, and then you spend the other ten percent of your time making a vinaigrette for them. It's <laughs> it's you don't really have to do much. Um, so it was that. That was good. And remembering that I, I you know, can hold a crew together, I suppose. I can help people find a way of cooking. And, yeah, and that I do love it down here. I do love working within a season. Again, cooking over fire and working within season sounds incredibly cliche, but there's no, there's no other option down here. You can't, you can't cook good food without doing it. You can't try and chase boxes of things down here. It doesn't happen. The connections that you forged with producers down there. Do you, do you have any stories of of one or two of the producers that um, that you love to use their products? Um, well, the, I guess one of the one of the biggest ones recently, Aiden, uh, Aiden Jackson's been catching a lot of really great fish, and it's it's wild down here. We're an island. We've got great cold water fish everywhere, and it's available, but there's limited licenses and there's limited people catching it. And most of it is taken to, to fish markets. 
But then you get a guy like Aiden who rocks up with the boat on the back of his ute, parks in front of the restaurant and brings in a bloody 10-kilo hour on his shoulder in the middle of service. If you, You're lucky if he's wearing Ugg boots, he'll generally come in in his socks <laughs> and ask for a set of scales so he can wait for you. Never, never, never at a good time. And you'll see him because we, like Franklin sat across the road from Tommy Hugo's and they're like, the absolute champions of, of food down here. Um, but you'd see him drop off first and you'd get the tubs ready. <laughs> he was great. Uh, Stan and Bryony down at Fat Carrot Farm. Oyster Cove, incredible, incredible people, incredibly intelligent. Made you always, always nervous cooking for them because you want to hope that everything in your building is the best it can be. Um, we got a chance to go down to cook with Stan out of the back of his caravan and we braised a whole, whole hogget from friends and served it up with just heaps of roast vegetables and We'd spent three hours in the morning trying to make uh, mugrabi out of <laughs> out of couscous and a spray bottle of water. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, know, you get to you get the chance down here to to cook for the people that you buy food off, and then go hang out with them on the weekends. These days, you're at Hamlet Cafe, and you're working early in the morning, but you get your afternoons and and evenings. That burnout that you spoke of in, throughout your career, what sort of impact has this lifestyle change and the hours change had on you? Um, again, an absolute change. I've never. I don't know this sounds over the top, but I don't feel like I've ever really had a life outside of hospital. Um, meeting my partner Emily. Uh, 18 months ago now, maybe a bit more, um, and pretty quickly moving in with her, she owns a house and now I've got my afternoons off, got weekends off with her um, and own a house. I have hobbies now, I have gardens, I have a bloody lathe out the back that I make my camera grinders on <laughs> in my spare time, but it's just, you know, you never had, you never had a chance to do those things before. Um, also we, we had a, had a daughter at the end of last year, which is, you know, um, and it was pretty, oh, it, was, it was very hard. We, we went into hospital at, at 24 weeks. My partner was on bed rest, bed rest from 22 weeks, a lot of complications and ended up spending 95 days in hospital and, and, um, thankfully had the, had Hamlet behind us to, to support that. And it's just, it's such a, not just with the, the work we do for, for people that are facing barriers, but for the staff itself are able to, to Cameron Perry, the head chef, he's one of the, the greatest people I've ever met and definitely one of the best chefs in, in Tasmania, but just such a lovely person. He was, allowed me to have all that time off. Um, I spent the five weeks in hospital with Emily before Polly was born and he would bring us, he would bring us lunch and, and dinner every day. And then, you know, now that we've we've finally got Polly home, we've had her home for a while now, but you know, able to spend those precious afternoons and, and weekends with her and watching her grow, it really makes me just not believe how people in hospital can do it. You know, working, I can't imagine working 80 hours a week and having her at home, you know, seeing her for a couple of hours on a weekend. Just, yes, not a possibility. Not something I'd ever do. That's a really hard entrance into life for, for her and your family. What, what sort of change did – has it changed your perspective of what's important moving forward? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's – you know, don't want, don't want to do nights again. It's hard to say as well, though, because that, that, that pull of, of cooking dinners is always there. Like you said, cafes are great. You can kind of cook whatever you want, and it's fun and fast and delicious. That, that pool's always going to be there, but I'm not going to attack that in a 
in a crazy way ever again. I'm not I'm not gonna try and cook those 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 massive hours. If I do go back into nights it'll be, you know, just a couple. Maybe there's so much more importance in the rest of life. You mentioned a bit earlier when you were a head chef that part of your role was about helping people find a way and you're in a role now which is you know, it's it's key to what you do now. Um do you have any um, stories of the the impact that Hamlet is having on on people's lives? Um, yeah, they they guess. Well, from my point of view, I felt I've always liked having apprentices. I've always liked training people in kitchens, but realizing that you don't ever get a chance to actually train people how to cook. You know, you get to teach someone how to cook a, an element on a plate to make a puree to to poach something perfectly. But it's that one element at Hamlet where taking someone and seeing just the sense of achievement on someone's face when they've learnt how to dice an onion, learnt how to how to wash a potato, um, had a and and some participants had this uh, young kid Sean who um, just didn't believe in himself at all. He'd he'd curse himself at the end of every shift, he'd do like a, a three hour shift and he would just be so upset with himself. And yes he's slowly building confidence and not even training, just conversations. A lot of the people that, that are at Hamlet, you know, they, they either live with their parents or they live in assisted accommodation. and They don't get a chance to chat with people. And you chuck them in a kitchen with three, you know, reasonably funny, happy-go-lucky chefs and you just get so much out of them. You see this person change and then Sean made the end of the program and came back in a couple of weeks later with this crazy, cheesy grin on his face and he just got himself uh, full-time employment as a kitchen hand. This is no, there's no score out of 20 or publication that can give you the, the feeling of seeing someone whose life has completely changed. Someone who's able to, you know, buy, pay rent, get their own house, buy themselves dinner. <laughs> you look back at cooking meals that you charge people $140 for food and you just, you know, honestly, fuck that. <laughs> it's not for me anymore. <laughs> You, you mentioned the lengths and that you went to for dishes and cooking in some of the great restaurants of your past, but how different your cooking is now. T- tell us about your cooking now, and um, do, you, do you have any dishes or um, change that you can tell us about? Um, well, with with the, the uh, intense seasonality of of Tasmania, we have this September, which was just blank. It's grey, and you might have some cabbages or potatoes. So as part of Hamlet and to offer more opportunities for training, we've started a, a condiment co. So we, through the summer, it's kind of one of the three of us in the kitchen's job every day to, to process food and get things into jars and cans so that we do have that fun time in, in winter. And that's definitely something I picked up from Dave. He, he preserves and incredibly well. Um, so my cooking now is just, I don't know, building building a pantry, building delicious things, lacto-fermented or um, confit. Or we've got a, a pressure canner now, so we're canning a lot of mackerel and, and tuna and, and riettes and things. And it's kind of, I don't know, allowing more time to train by having things on the shelf. Now we're, like I said earlier, Tasmania is about building a relationship, getting vegetables and making a vinaigrette. We kind of open a jar of pickles now and put it on a and Stan will bring us great one box and we'll 
put a bit of pickle something on top of those, some some green harissa on it or, you know, whatever we've got at the moment. This makes life a whole lot easier. And you're also able to, to use up those small batches of things that come in. A lot of these farmers down here and a lot in Hobart are just in backyards. So you might get 20 of one thing instead of trying to test and stuff around to find something that might work. You cook it nicely, you put something yum on top and hey, it's kind of, I kind of now eat at home the same way I cook in the cafe. You've had the most incredible shift in your career, but you're having more impact than you ever have. What do you love about what you do? Oh, like I said, I love, I love the, the, exactly that, the impact. Being able to visibly see that you're, you're doing something. I think it's very hard. I don't know, funny thing as well, of, like I said, do a bit of woodwork at home now. That was incredible because it's a tangible thing. I don't think you really get that in, in cooking. You, you build a reputation. You build a – people have a knowledge of what you do and where you've worked. But other than that, there's nothing to really, I don't know, see that you've done. <laughs> you know, spend up until now 15 years in kitchens and not there's nothing to show for it, but I don't know. Now there's – you can see people moving away from – from working with you and you can see what you know their life has totally changed and you know maybe some of those guys are going to do the same thing we're also uh, starting a a series of lunches at Hamlet um, and bringing some down some of our mentors we're getting Dave Hall down for the first event in April um, like to cook with him for sure but also showing what we're doing and hopefully him and the others we get down get to see that you know, there's a different type of perfect employee. There's people in the community that deserve a bit of a voice. Um, but I think that's, well, that's the biggest thing I've learned from Hamlet is that it's it's not the barriers that the people have. It's not um, it's not someone's lack of, of confidence or their anxiety or an illness that they might have that is a barrier to them being in the workforce of the community. It's it's us. It's the people that run restaurants. It's the people in the community that don't give those people a voice. It's yeah. It's not. It's not the individual's fault. They're not. They're not holding themselves back. Well, Peter, what you're doing is absolutely extraordinary, and the impact is incredible. It's an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. And um, please keep in touch, and we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.